whenever the Super Bowl is. Uh, it'll be in the morning. We'll be all finished so you can have all your Super Bowl parties. But yes, please remember that. Do not come here on February the 3rd because you will you'll be by yourself. If you want a quiet place to come and pray all by yourself, come here February the 3rd because we will be at Goodwin Fraser Elementary School. We really are excited about this move um, and we think it's going to give us a lot more space to do things, both just kind of physical space for, uh, for worship as well as some extra places where kids can get cared for and it's just kind of a nice place. Uh, the other thing we're excited about about Goodwin Fraser is it gives us an immediate partnership with people to serve. We've got a school that we can just kind of dig into. In fact, we've already started talking to them about how we can serve them. Over spring break, we're going to do a little bit of work on their playground and paint this pavilion that's on their playground and some picnic benches and stuff so the kids can have some better playground equipment. Just kind of tuck that back behind your head. But we really are excited about this new uh, new place to be. Well, we started just a few weeks ago. If you're if you're new with if you're new with us, um, first of all, my name is Derek. Uh, I'm the pastor. I'd love to meet you if I haven't. And we are just a few weeks into a series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, really, the the life of Jesus as described by Mark. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, there are four books of the Bible that we call gospel accounts. They are accounts of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. They all tell the same thing, the same story. They tell it from four different perspectives. And we're in the gospel of Mark, so we get Mark's particular perspective. And we're going to talk this morning about what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to look at a couple of passages where Jesus calls his first disciples. And we're going to see how that really pertains to us as disciples. When we use this word discipleship, it's just what we mean is following Jesus. What it means to follow Jesus. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 16. This should be printed in your bulletin as well. Mark chapter 1 verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he, meaning Jesus, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And then flipping over to chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Hi, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us even now. We thank you that it penetrates our hearts. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts to hear your word today. That we might better understand what it means to follow you. What it means to be your disciples. 
what it means to leave all else and seek you only. Well, these are big things. So we ask, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear your word to us today. Lord, may the meditations of my mouth and of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking um, this week a little bit about, I don't know why, I was thinking about this, about the civil rights movement, and particularly about uh, Rosa Parks and just the activity of um, just this amazing um, radical activity on that bus in Birmingham. And really, her action has a lot in common with a lot of other of the actions in the civil rights movement. If you think of Rosa Parks, so if you're unfamiliar with it, you know, she was taking the bus home from work, and instead of sitting in the back of the bus where she was told to sit, she sat in the front. It was the place to go. And when the white man came onto the bus and asked her to move, she decided she wasn't going to, because she was just as valuable as he is. Well, similar things happened all around that time, of course. Uh, Sit-ins were organized uh, at lunch counters. started in in Greensboro, North Carolina, but really happened all throughout the country where where people would come in, where African-American men and women would come into lunch counters that were supposed to be only for whites, and they would simply sit at the counter and ask to be served. The same kind of thing also happened uh, in, in different areas of the civil rights movement. Uh, in, in Little Rock, Arkansas, a group of students simply went to enroll in high school. It was actually the law allowed them to do so, but the local governing authorities were keeping them out. And it was interesting, you know, all of these things have a couple things in common. They were all really radical approaches to what was the cultural norm of the time. Sometimes they were radical approaches to what the actual law was, but in all the cases they were radically opposed to the cultural norms. They went countercultural. They were going against the grain and they were doing so in really radical ways. But they were all doing it in actions that were really pretty regular. I mean, taking the bus home after work, regular thing. Sitting and ordering food at a restaurant, regular thing. Going to high school, regular activity. And it made me think, you know, this is really what the Lord calls us to when he calls us to discipleship. When he calls us to follow him. And again, I'm using the word discipleship really coterminously with just what it means to be a Christian. To follow Jesus. And when Jesus calls us to follow him, he does so in ways that are really radical in their approach. An approach that is totally countercultural in so many ways. That is deeply radical. But oftentimes with actions... That are just regular, normal, everyday kind of stuff. If you've seen even the title in the bulletin, that's what we're going to talk about. The discipleship is really the combination of radical approach and regular activity. And we're going to look at those two sides today. And just, just fair warning, we're going to spend a lot more time on the first. So, you know, 20 minutes from now when I say, and now we're turning to the second, don't panic. We're spending more time in the first, the first part of it. So let's start to pick that apart. What do, what do I mean when I say that discipleship means there is a radical approach to the way that we live? Well, it just means that Jesus has to be the center of all that we do. And that's super easy to say, right? Jesus is the center of my life. But actually, when that comes down to brass tacks, that is a lot harder than it, to do than it is to say. I mean, look at these men that Jesus calls, first of all. These fishermen here in chapter 1, he's passing alongside the lake and he calls 
Simon, who will eventually be called Peter, so Simon and Peter, same person in the Bible. We'll actually see in a minute that Levi is also Matthew. A lot of people have multiple names. I know it gets confusing, but just kind of follow me here. So Jesus calls Simon and Andrew his brother, and then he calls James and John, two brothers, and they're fishermen. Now, for us reading this, you know, some of us can think, um, okay, yeah, I've been fishing, and... It was super boring, and I didn't catch anything, and I was sitting in this boat. And so, yeah, Jesus comes. He says, let's do something else. It's kind of a no-brainer, right? Maybe these guys are just bored out there on the lake fishing with nothing else to do. But these are not just beach bums fishing in their spare time. These men are professional fishermen. We actually get a little bit of that when we read about James and John, because they're with their father, Zebedee, and, Mark tells us, with hired servants. So they're not just guys out there fishing on their own. They've actually got a small business, a family business that is father and two sons. And they have, they're making enough to employ other people to do it. They probably own their boats. They probably own their nets and they're employing others. They've got a small family business going. Now, if you look at this similar account in the gospel of Luke, Again, Luke is telling the same story that Mark is. He's telling it from a different perspective. And Mark kind of compresses it. Luke actually expands it, gives us some more details. If you look at Luke's account, you you actually learn that, that Peter and Andrew and James and John were partners. They were, they were business partners. So now we have this fishing enterprise that is consisting of at, at least five adults that we see, plus others who are employed. So we've got partners, and we've got employees, and we've got a couple of boats, and we've got multiple nets. So we're actually a decent-sized business here. It is their livelihood. It is the way that they provide for themselves and their families is fishing. So Jesus is not just calling them away from a leisure activity. He's calling them away from the thing that actually supports them and their family. If you look at Luke's uh, account of this, it actually gets even more interesting. Because what Luke tells us is that Jesus is there on, on the shore, and it's morning. And Peter and Andrew, or Simon and Andrew, have been fishing. They've come in from the shore because they've been fishing all night. The fishing was better at night, so they would have stayed out all night fishing. That's when they would have caught the most fish. But we hear actually in Luke that they've had a really bad night. They've been out fishing all night, and they haven't really caught much of anything. And Peter meets them on the shore in the morning, and he I mean, Jesus meets them on the shore in the morning, and he says, let me get in the boat, let's go fish some more. And Peter has this great response, where he basically says, um, I'm paraphrasing, Jesus, you know, you grew up in a carpenter's household, right? Well, I grew up fishing, it's what I do, I kind of know this stuff, we've been fishing all night, that's when you catch the fish, and guess what, we didn't catch anything a, we're tired. B, we know there are no fish in here. Let's actually not do that. But, you know, if you want to, we will humor you. So they get in the boat. They push back out into the sea. And Jesus says, cast your nets over here. And what Luke tells us is they cast their nets out and they catch so many fish that they can't even hold them in the nets. That the nets are starting to break. They have to call James and John over to come help them. They have to call their business partners over to come in and pull all the nets. Now, again, for us, 21st century Texas eyes, what we look at it and go, we go, oh man, that's a cool miracle that Jesus did. Isn't that fun? And, of course, Peter, 
The first thing we read is that Peter realizes, I'm dealing with somebody that's a little different than most people I deal with. And he falls on his knees and he starts to worship Jesus. But there's something else under the surface that I think we probably don't see. Because if you're a professional fisherman, what you see with nets that are bursting so full of fish that you can't even haul them in, is you see a lot of money. This is probably more fish than these guys have ever caught at one time. I mean, Jesus has found the mother load for them. He has hit the jackpot, and they are pulling in fish, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. They're pulling in so many fish that they get to go then and sell and actually make a living doing what they're doing. Jesus has given them the best day they've ever had financially. But then what does he do? He says... Leave it here and follow me. Crazy. Right? In like real estate broker language, it'd be like Jesus saying, listen, you're about to broker the deal to sell the Taj Mahal. Okay? But come and follow me instead. It's the most, uh, it's, it's the most prosperous thing that they could encounter and Jesus is calling them away from it. Isn't that interesting? It tells us a lot, actually, about the radical nature of discipleship. Is that Jesus actually calls us to put him at the center of our lives exclusively. We we, we oftentimes have this concept, sometimes this concept can show up in our lives without us even really knowing it. But it's this. It's, okay, at the center of my life really is my own happiness. And around my own happiness go some things like my work, my family... My relationships, some leisure time, maybe some service in the city, some Jesus thrown in there. And it all kind of works into this mix. And if we can get it in the right mix and the right balance, then that's really where we need to be. Jesus is saying something here totally different than that. What he's saying is, I don't want to be one of the things that works into the mix. I need to be at the center. So that your work, your relationships, your friendships... The people around you, the way that you think about life, it all revolves around me. That is a radical approach to life. Let me just pause and kind of ask you this question to ponder. If you put yourself in the position of Simon and Andrew and James and John, what is the thing that scares you the most about Jesus calling you away from? What would be the hardest thing to leave? There's a good chance that it's that thing that's at the center of your life that's displacing where Jesus should be. All right, let's move on to the second piece because there's more even about this radical approach to discipleship. First of all, of course, Jesus wants us at the center of his life. That is radical enough. But look at this too. Is that Jesus calls us not simply personally to relate to him, but he calls us into a community and he calls us into a community full of people we wouldn't choose to be there. Now just follow me here for a second. The, the first passage that we read was some guys that work together. Brothers, two brothers, and these two brothers. And it seems like they're friends, or at least they've been business partners for quite some time. They know each other, they're cool with each other, everything is fine. But when we jump to chapter 2 and we read this story of Levi, or Matthew, we, figure out, we, we find out the first thing about Levi that we find out is that he's a tax collector. 
Now, a tax collector in that time would have been a very, uh, a very different kind of um, situation in profession than we think about tax collecting right now. Because they lived in a time in which Israel was their country, right? That was their home country, but they were not free. They were actually under the authority of the Roman Empire. Israel at that time was part of the Roman Empire, which meant that they had a little bit of their own autonomy. They had a king, but that king was really just a puppet for the emperor. And so, in order to be a part of the Roman Empire and enjoy things like those wonderful Roman roads that were always kept nice uh, and, and clean and safe, and enjoy the Roman army that protected you, you had to pay taxes to Rome. And the way that the Roman Empire uh, took their taxes, especially in these little vassal communities like Israel, is that they would find a local person to take the taxes, to collect the taxes. And they wouldn't publicize. It wouldn't be something that you could look up on the web and say, well, my tax bracket is this, and so therefore I owe this percentage. They would come and they'd find the local guy and they'd say, okay, we need 10%. But you know what? You can charge whatever you want. Just give us 10%. All the extra is yours. And so the tax collectors were the people who were working for the occupying government and collecting your money for the occupying government. And by the way, it was a system that almost always led to extortion. Because if you say, yeah, you can give me this and charge whatever you want. You can keep the rest. Well, I'm probably going to jack it up really high. And that's exactly what they did. So most, collect, most tax collectors were super wealthy. But they were super wealthy uh, at the expense of being completely excluded from their own community. They were some of the most hated people in Israel. Because not only were they working for the Romans, but they were getting rich off of working for the Romans. And so if you were a tax collector in Israel, you were shunned. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. So they, they couldn't go to church with everybody else. They couldn't be a witness in court. They couldn't be a judge. They couldn't get called, you know, for jury duty, which I know sounds like maybe that's a privilege. But, you know, they were shunned from society. They were outcasts. Well, what do we read just after Jesus calls Levi, this tax collector? We read that Jesus is at Levi's house with his disciples. So James and John and Peter and Andrew were there eating and drinking in Levi's house. And we read later on that they are all going to become kind of part of the core team. Jesus' disciples. I mean, you can kind of hear James and John and Peter and Andrew thinking like, all right, Jesus, yeah, we got this cool ministry. We're building this church. We're, we're, we're kind of creating this little launch team. I've got a great idea. This is, there's a guy I know, and he's a super guy. He's like in church all the time. He does all the right. He knows all the people. He'd be a great member of the core team. And Jesus says, hmm, actually, I was thinking about, what about Levi, tax collector, right? And James and John, ah, that's, no, I don't think that's going to work. Later on in the Gospels, we actually read that one of Jesus' disciples is a guy named Simon the Zealot. And Zealot probably doesn't just describe his personality. It actually probably describes his political affiliation. There was a political party in Israel called the Zealots. You know what their one big platform was? Kick the Romans out. That was the one thing that they were the most concerned with was get the Roman occupation out of here. They hated the Romans. So what is pub night with the disciples going to look like with Simon the Zealot and Levi the tax collector? The guy whose one goal it is to get rid of the Romans and the guy who's working for the Romans. That's who God joins together in the church. 
It's not crazy. People that would never join themselves together. People that wouldn't even want to be in the same room. It's still true for the church. God has called us to be in community with people that we wouldn't choose on our own. The church is described as a family. We belong to the family of God. Guess what? You don't choose your family, do you? It's chosen for you. This is really hard for us. I mean, if you simply just kind of look at it on the surface, you can see why it's so hard. It's why most churches are mono-ethnic. It's why most churches only have a particular economic range in them. It's why most churches are filled with people stuck together with other like-minded folks that they want to hang around. That's just our sinful nature. But the truth is, that's not what church is. Church is not the place where you go to hang around with like-minded people that you want to be with. Church is the place that God brings you to be with people that you may not want to be with. Let me give you two questions to just kind of chew on here for a second. The first is this. Um, who is not here? Just, just, just kind of take a second to consider this. Who's not here today? When we look around and we see who's here, who are we missing? And again, Jesus is talking about people who hate each other. We don't even have to go nearly that far. Right? Let's go with people we don't hate that just don't look like us or act like us or don't have the same jobs that we do. And here's the second question, and I think this is really related to it, is that who is here that we still have a hard time being in community with? We were, uh, we were in Charleston this last week and Joy and I were, I was doing a wedding there and had a great opportunity to have a conversation with a man who was there for the wedding as well. African American man married to uh, a white woman with mixed race kids. And he was telling me about how difficult it is in the church. We were just talking about this, these issues. Why is it so hard for the church to deal with race? And for him, he was saying, you know, I- I'm raising my kids. I want my kids to look at somebody and say, there is a man or a woman who follows Jesus and looks like me. And he said, that's really hard in my church. And so I just asked, like, what do we do? How do we fix this? And his answer was so wonderful. He said, you know, I heard a sermon about this recently. And what the pastor said was, instead of wondering how do we fix those big problems, what if we just looked around next to us and we thought, okay, there's a person who actually is my same ethnicity is my same general age, is in my same kind of general, you know, economic kind of range. Like, we're really alike, and we just so happen to have some different political views. Or we happen to have different interests. He said, if you can't get along with that person, who four out of those five boxes are already checked, you have no hope of expanding that. I thought, man, that is really convicting. When we look around, even in our little church... Who has God already brought us that's different than us? Who is he already calling us to interact our lives with and intertwine our lives with in ways that might be difficult for us? Because until we answer that question, we'll never be able to get to, well, how does our church include more people that don't look like me? And even more so, how do we have people in here who we really don't even get along with? That's radical, isn't it? That's a radical approach to life because we don't think that way most of the time. Here's the third thing about kind of this radical approach, and then we'll flip the coin in just a minute. 
not only is there this radical call to make Jesus the center of our lives and, and also a radical call to a community that is full of people we wouldn't choose on our own, but it's also really a radical proclamation that we are called in to participate with. If you were here last week, you heard Will Nettleton preach on, on this just couple of little verses where Jesus says, the first real public things that Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, again, we hear that with, with our just kind of like super church ears and we think the kingdom of God, yeah, that's fun religious language. But, you know, that was weird. It's weird for somebody to come and say, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Right? So, A, the kingdom of, like, what do you mean the kingdom of God? Like, God, God I mean, the kingdom, like, that's a, that's a real, like, earthly thing. And so how can you have the kingdom of God? And also, if there's a kingdom, like, where's the king? Is it you? Like, Jesus? Because, like, you don't really look like a king. This is a weird proclamation. It was weird for them to hear. Probably just, it, just as weird as it is oftentimes for people to hear that from our lips when we say, you know, really my life kind of is centered around a Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago. Well, a lot of people go, eh, that's kind of odd. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Again, if you've been sitting in church pews your whole life, that's just kind of regular language. But for much of the world, that is incredibly incendiary language. That is radical language. To be able to say that there is a kingdom that we need to be a part of to promote in this world and in our hearts that works very much opposite the way that most of the kingdoms that we're used to work. There's not a kingdom of how do I get everything that I want out of the world. It's not a kingdom of how do I consume all that I can so that I can make myself the most pleased. It's not a kingdom of what do I do that can kind of revolve all the world's power and control around me so that I can get everything that I want. The kingdom of self that rules our hearts so often also rules our culture. That is what we hear the most. That is what we participate the most. And it is contrary to what God says that he has come to do. To rule the world and justice, and righteousness, and love, and mercy, and sacrifice. We're part of a proclamation that is just pretty radical. And this may be the most radical piece of it, is that that proclamation also includes us saying, we're part of the problem. See, when we proclaim the gospel, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And what was the next thing he said? Repent. Ouch. That means that there's a problem with me. And when we proclaim the good news, we are at the same time proclaiming the bad news about who we are. We are proclaiming that we need help. At the end of that passage with Levi, you see the Pharisees, they're there at the party, and they are wondering how in the world is it that Jesus can eat with these guys. And what Jesus says to them is, it's not the healthy that need the doctor, it's the sick. I came to save the sick. Now, if you're a Pharisee, what you heard was, okay, Jesus just went to be with these people because they need him. He's not with us because we don't need him. But there's something a lot more subtle going on. Because what Jesus is actually saying is, I'm here with these people because they know they need me. And I'm not with you because you don't think you need me. We say this all the time in this church. Everybody needs Jesus. That is one of the core proclamations of the Bible. Is that outsider, tax collector, 
sinner. We're going to go our own way and be super, um, you know, in your face kind of sinners. Like those kinds of people, they need Jesus. But you know what? Insider, religious, self-righteous, have it all together people also need Jesus. Is what Jesus is saying is that I have come to seek and save the lost. I have come to heal the sick. And guess what? You're sick too. The church, we've said this over and over, it's a hospital. It's not a country club. A country club is something that you join because you've achieved something. A hospital is something that you check in because you need it. That's what the church is. The church is an organization full of people who are sick And the only reason we're here is because this is where the doctor is. We know that this is where the healing is to be found. Everybody needs Jesus. Friends, that is a radical proclamation. That's what we've been called into to not only acknowledge in our hearts, but even to proclaim to the world. So how do we do that? We'll flip the coin now. We've been talking kind of about the what. Let's talk about the how. How do we go about that? And this is where it is so so wonderful and maybe even just as radical and amazing is that it happens with regular activity. And we could go through actually all of those things that we talked about and, and, and see how God calls us to regular action of just being in the world and of working in the world and of loving one another. But I just want to focus in on that last one, that being a part of that proclamation of the good news, the regular activity that actually accomplishes that. Look at the end of this passage in chapter 2. What happens? When he's calling Levi, verse 14, As he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And then verse 15, And as Jesus reclined a table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Okay, so we see in verse 14 that Jesus has called Levi to follow him, and he does. And we see in, in verse 15 that Jesus ends up at, at, uh, at his house, and he's eating and drinking with Levi and all of his tax collector buddies. So what's happened between verse 14 and 15 where the setting has changed? Well... <laughs> I think clearly what has happened is that Levi decided to throw a party and invite his tax collector friends and Jesus. He threw a dinner party and he invited all of his buddies, the people he knows, other tax collectors, other outcasts, and he invited Jesus and all of his disciples and they're all there together. Now, this totally blows the Pharisees' mind, right? They're like, ah, how how can this be? How can you have, like, the holy people and the unholy people eating and drinking together? That doesn't make any sense. It makes total sense for Levi, and it makes total sense for Jesus. Now, let me just, let's break it down really uh, practically here. Is that if you invite your unchurched friends to your house for dinner, and invite a churched family to your house for the same dinner, and you introduce the two, there's something about that that Jesus really likes. Jesus seems to be really cool with that activity. And do you see how normal that is? Introduce your friends to your friends. Introduce one person to another so that they might come to know each other, and to do so around a meal. There's something to that. Jesus, as one commentator says, eats his way through the Gospels. 
We see Jesus preaching in the synagogues, but honestly, most of the time, Jesus' activity takes place around a dinner table. And there's food, and there's wine, and it's just kind of the thing, it's the way that it works. So what does it look like for us to simply take part in that regular activity of introducing friends to friends? Of simply finding our friends in the church and bringing them together with our friends who are outside of the church. Sometimes it can be just as simple as that. For real, I'm talking about having dinner. Or it can be, I'm going to invite these friends to church and I've planned already that we're going to go out to lunch afterwards with this other family so that I can introduce them. It takes a little more planning, but it's regular stuff. It's regular activity of eating and drinking and talking and introducing one person to another. Alright, that's, we went through the what, there's the how. Let's just close really quickly with the why. What's our, what's our motivation for this? Well, here's the beauty, of course, is that Jesus has already done all of these things for us. Right, we say that we're called to, to leave. Jesus comes and he calls those disciples. Guess what? He's, he's done that before. He's not calling the, in, them to anything that he hasn't already done. What we see in the Bible is that Jesus actually leaves his throne in heaven to become one of us. He leaves so that he might call us. And we talk about this idea of being joined to a community full of people that we wouldn't necessarily choose. Guess what? Jesus wouldn't have chosen you or me either. And he's joined himself to us. He's made us part of his family. Those of us who the Bible describes as running just the opposite way from God, Jesus has tracked us down and brought us in. And he has done so to make us part of this proclamation. That not only is the kingdom of God at hand, but that we are to believe the good news. That he comes proclaiming the good news. That there is something called forgiveness for our sin. That there is a way for us to find our ultimate fulfillment in something other than our activity. That there is some, a way for us to find our value and our worth in something other than the way that we look or the way that we perform or the way that our society sees us or our standing amongst others or the amount of power we have or the amount of control we have or whatever it is. That's the good news of the gospel. That God has actually called us to find our fullness in Him. And he's called us to respond to that. Will you join me in praying, not just right now, but even through this week, that God would enable us to not only understand that good news more fully, but to be able to respond to it in ways that are oftentimes very radical, very countercultural, but also incredibly normal, incredibly regular. Let's pray that now. Father, we do thank you for, first of all, what you've done for us that you have left your throne, that you are the one who has sent, that you have come and joined yourself to us, that we might be part of who you are, that you have made a new community full of people that we're not really sure why you've chosen us. And Lord, to be part of this beautiful proclamation of good news. Lord, we want to believe that more. We want to know it and feel it. We want to see the reality of it more. And we want to respond to it. We show us what it means to respond in this really radical approach to following you. But Lord, even through just normal, everyday stuff like eating and drinking. Lord, show us how to do that today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.